Hello and welcome to the Past and Present Podcast. Join me and my co-host Chris as we journey through history one story at a time. Today we are talking about Magna Carta, a 13th century Latin document concerning church rights and fish weirs that is still quoted even today. Hi Chris, how are you? I'm doing okay Rosie, how are you? I'm good. So, I can't lie, I don't really know much about the Magna Carta. I mean, it's quite bad. I've been and visited Runnymede. I live in the borough of Runnymede and I still know nothing. So, I feel like it's finally time to be educated. Good. I mean, that's what I'm here for, isn't it? Um, I I think Magna Carta is something that, especially in this country, people hear a lot but don't necessarily know, you know, what, what is Magna Carta and why is it still important. Yeah, definitely. It's it's branded about in the media a lot, but with no relevance. Yeah, so Magna Carta is an 800-year-old document, like, a, like you said in the introduction. Uh, it's written in Latin, and the bulk of it is about the church and the rights to your rights as a, a free person to, I don't know, chop down trees in the royal forests or put a fish weir in the Thames and all sorts of weird... Um, things that we don't see as necessarily relevant anymore, but at the time, as I'll, uh, I'm sure we'll get into uh, through this episode, uh, was really important. Um, it was first signed in uh, 1215 um, at Runnymede, um, which, as you said, you, you do live fairly close to. Um, but it was signed between uh, King John, um, not the, um, the line from Robin, the Robin Hood film, but uh, who he's based on. Um, and the uh, leading barons of the day who had pretty much spent the last uh, last 15 years, really, um, if not mildly annoyed, at, you know, in outright war with the king. So I think a lot of us will have heard of King John because um, he's widely regarded as kind of one of the worst kings, mm. um, whether fairly or unfairly. A lot of people really don't like him. Um, so it's interesting, like, that there was, you know, he was doing something wrong um, to kind of lead on to the start of this. Yeah, he was, I, I, it's weird, like, usually when you when you look at history, there is at least two sides to every story. With King John, there's not many people that think he was even half decent. It's pretty well um, accepted that John was probably, if not the worst, one of the worst rulers in English-British history. Um, in terms of treatment, not necessarily in terms of, I don't know, administration and, and political might, but yeah, overall package, John was not a good dude. Um, but yeah, there was a series of events that kind of that led to, to Magna Carta. And to be honest, we're talking about Magna Carta, you know, quite willy-nilly at the moment. It's, it's just a phrase I'm throwing around, but for context, in, you know, the early 13th century, this was... This had never been done before. Nothing like this document had ever been probably even envisioned, never mind, you know, put in front of a um, divinely appointed monarch, which we'll, uh, we'll touch on later, I'm sure. So kind of pre-Magna Carta, was it like, obviously we think of like rights and stuff like that for people and that kind of thing, but... So basically there was kind of nothing in place to stop you from doing something and like controlling people, that kind of thing. So Magna Carta was kind of a set of rules that they were bringing in. Essentially, yeah, that's that's spot on. Um, there was like the common law and, you know, the king's peace and 
there was a, a, a sense of justice and I don't want anybody to take away from this that it was, you know, that 12th and 11th century England was a completely lawless place. There was times of, you know, incredible safety um, and, and prosperity and peace, um, especially um, during the reign of John's father, Henry II, who was a, a, pretty, a pretty remarkable king, as well as, you know, a duke uh, of Aquitaine and of Normandy, a count of Anjou. He, you know, the Angevin Empire, as it was known later, was um, stretched from Scotland to the uh, Pyrenees Mountains. It was a, a, a vast chunk of France as well as England. Um, but John's brother, Richard, Richard the Lionheart, who was king before him, um, didn't spend enough time in England um, really to, to make a mark on um, English kingship. But then by the time uh, John um, ascended to the throne in 1189, um, to, be, to be fair to John, the, the cards were kind of stacked against him. He just definitely didn't help it. Yeah, and I think you know, the fact that we kind of regard Richard the Lionheart as this kind of, you know, big, brave hero, and mm. he's really got, like, a strong reputation. I mean, I guess, obviously, Robin Hood is one of the things that also helps him because they kind of sing his praises and that. Um, but I think, you know, to go from someone that's seen as the hero because he was out at war and stuff to go to John, I can imagine it was, you know, not the best situation. Mm. Yeah, because John was never, never really meant to inherit the crown. He was probably lined up for a, um, a job in the church. He was the, the last son, uh, the last child of, of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, he, he had you know, Richard, Geoffrey, Henry and William as older brothers. Um, William and Henry and Geoffrey actually um, died before um, Henry II, so that's why Richard inherited. Um, but yeah, obviously Richard only ruled for a decade um, and didn't have, uh, never had any children. Um, so there was no direct heir to take over from Richard. So John was the logical choice, but he wasn't the only choice. There was Arthur of Brittany, who was the son of uh, Geoffrey, his older brother, um, who suddenly and miraculously disappeared. Um, absolutely nothing to do with John, obviously, um, but Apparently he was strangled to death um, as John was in a drunken rage and thrown into the Seine River, uh, which is pretty nasty. Yeah, I mean, they always manage to make sure that the uh, only other heir goes missing, don't they? Yeah. It's always the way. Um, but it's interesting because John was in charge, not in charge, he was kind of like a regent when Richard was away fighting, or have I like made that up? No, so um, whether Richard liked it or not, <laughs> John was a, a, an astute politician at times, even though his re reputation kind of says otherwise. He was a very uh, intelligent, uh, manipulative man and found himself pushing for power. When, when Richard was abroad during the Third Crusade, he um, essentially rose up in rebellion against his brother, who wasn't obviously around to, um, to fight back or keep his little brother in check. He aligned himself with the French king, Philip Augustus, um, a character that props up, uh, pops up a few times uh, in this story. Um, but it was the job of their mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, my favourite person in history, for those that don't know. <laughs> um, 
it was her job essentially to make sure that John didn't destroy everything that her and Henry had worked on for the last, uh, you know, the best part of four decades. Um, and she spent a lot of her time keeping John away from the crown because he did try and take the crown whilst Richard was abroad um, for some reason because um, he was a, a truly terrible person, probably. So we've established that John is terrible. I mean, um, and I can kind of see why this kind of legislation would start to come in because people mm. are going to be unhappy if their king is acting like this. Um, and obviously I know kind of you touched on like it was kind of the barons that initiated the law, but was there also unrest from the wider public, you know, the ordinary person? Yeah, so, I mean, ultimately, when we're talking about this period of history, most of the sources that we have, um, the written sources, are do not concern themselves with the regular folk. Um, it's just not well recorded, if recorded at all. Um, but John's rule and his um, manipulation of the crown, essentially, and his position... And would have affected everybody from, you know, from William Marshall, his his absolute best mate slash leading baron, all the way down to, um, you know, Robert Hodd, who may or may not have been Robin Hood. Um, so yeah, it affected everybody throughout throughout society. Um, there are there are there were things that that John did um, to control every aspect of essentially every aspect of people's lives through the church. Um, through who people could and couldn't marry. Um, and his favourite thing to do was to fine everybody for anything. Um, I guess I've already mentioned uh, marriage. So as an example, if um, a um, noble woman became a widow, husband dies, um, it was not her decision who she could remarry and when she would remarry. Um, historically before that, it was a completely reasonable thing to do to let a widow decide she could then manage her own estates um, and decide to marry maybe even for love. Probably not. But more so, it was much freer than with John, who saw it as an opportunity to make money um, by saying, OK, you are a widow that owns, I don't know, a thousand pounds worth of land. I want you to marry this chap who you've never met before, who's 30 years you're younger and you're going to get married and you're going to pay me for the privilege and if you don't agree to this marriage you will also pay me in a fine. Um, he also made sure that um, if there was any heirs that were coming into their inheritance and they were too young, you know, a 12-year-old becomes um, an Earl of something, Hereford, let's say, um, his father dies, he would then um, keep that earldom or the castle or whatever it was, the tiny plot of land, um, and he would reap the rewards of that and not give any of the benefits to the heir. And when the heir came of age, he would then sell that land back to them, even though it was theirs by right. Um, so John was very frugal. He was able to... Um, stock his coffers probably quite well. He needed a lot of it, to be fair, because he was, and I'm, I'll touch on this later as well, he was in and out of war, um, whether literally with himself or his subjects or, you know, everybody's favourite enemy, the French. He was constantly paying for mercenaries. 
um, and, and to keep armies in the field because, um, but his, his, his brutal system of fines and levies that he uh, would in play, um, put in place allowed him to, uh, to finance all these, uh, all these wars. I mean, there's being like frugal and then there's actually forcing people to marry someone. I mean, that's yeah. very extreme. Like, I know other monarchs have had extreme taxation and kind of, you know, ideologies. Like, if you think about Henry VIII and kind of the dissolution mm. of the mon monasteries and like he kind of debased the coinage, um, that's nothing compared to actually forcing people to marry someone or finding them or like taking their you know their rights away from them because imagine if you knew you were going to be the earl and your dad happened to die a little bit too early you just like having it sold back to you is just ridiculous yeah it, it was it was a truly i imagine an awful time to live even even as a noble um it was very very easy for these you know these noble families that had you know, had come over with the Normans in 1066 and for better or for worse had lived um, a life of luxury for two centuries or a century and a half anyway, um, were impoverished and indebted to the crown um, in perpetuity, Perpe perpetuity, forever, for loads of time. <laughs> um, um, and yeah, and like I say, you know, yeah, John, John was incredibly money savvy, let's say. He knew how and how and when he could get money, whether it was in um, through legitimate sources or not, he was he was damn good at getting his coin. Um, there was also other things he did. Um, he was um, very much a keen hunter, as most medieval monarchs were. It was a it was a pastime of kings, um, but um, as again famously shown in pretty much every single Robin Hood. Adaptation. The forests were, uh, for the most part, um, uh, royal land owned by the king. Um, the word forest, as far as I know, actually comes from the like um, old Norman French for outside. So it was essentially an outside space um, that they controlled, and that's why we have forests. Um, I'm not sure if it actually translates to anything of modern French, but it's definitely from something that old uh, William the Conqueror brought over with him. Um, but yeah, essentially you weren't allowed to cut down trees for firewood. You weren't allowed to hunt, obviously. You weren't allowed to collect anything. For the most part, you probably weren't even allowed to be in the forests. And anybody that has been to England or is from England or Britain, you'll notice how green it is now in, in 2022. But, you know, take it back eight centuries most of England was covered in these royal forests and it was just a giant playground for, for men like John. Um, a side note on that, it wasn't just John who both increased and then increased the fines on forest lands. His brother Richard was a keen hunter and um, carved out at the, most of Essex and vast swathes of English countryside for essentially, like I said, his own pleasure, as did his father Henry II. But um, John does take the brunt of the um, negative press for this, even though he was just one of many that, that did this. But like I said, it may have been the, the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of his finances. But to be honest, we're not even scratching the surface of what, what John was doing in the run-up to 1215 that, that kind of caused the Magna Carta to be, uh, to be put forward. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think you can see where he's starting to kind of go wrong because although mm. you said like 
you know, Richard and Henry and previous monarchs had um, put fines and kind of rules around forests, if you think that paired with other things is going to annoy people even more, whereas, you know, maybe Richard and Henry would, you know, maybe they were doing the forest thing, but they weren't doing the other things. And you can kind of see how it all adds up to, you know, massive unrest because a forest is outside. Like, how can you be controlling it for your own exactly. gain? Like, I know now there's a lot of royal land and stuff like that, but the rules aren't as strict on it. You're not going to get told off for walking through the forest. Whereas, yeah. you know, you could walk through the forest and get fined in the past, which obviously people are not going to agree with yeah and and a fine was probably the best thing you could get away with in that situation um people were maimed so ears and noses and eyes gouged out or they they were killed um obviously on repeat offense but um you know john was (laughs) i could say say it a thousand times john was terrible he's truly an awful king Uh, awful man as well let's be honest he was a known womanizer um he's famous for um sleeping with the wives, daughters, and um, courtiers of his nobles, um, he was, even though he was married to a 12-year-old. Um, but that, I've made that sound, this is a very hard sentence to say, but I've made this sound worse than it was. It was fairly common, slash not really accepted, but to marry young at that time. But yeah, he, that's another thing he did wrong. He, he snatched Isabella of Angoulême um, from a French noble, uh, Hugh de Lusignan, um, he broke off a betrothal to marry this 12-year-old girl because she had land. Uh, honestly, I'd, I'd, it's, it's not somebody I don't think you'd ever want to, uh, to, to cross paths with, to be honest. I mean, I'm starting to feel bad because I've just had a flashback to, um, you know, like year seven history. Mm. Um, and we had to do like a essay on who was the most terrible British monarch um, and I argued in favour of John. And now that I'm hearing all this stuff that they didn't tell you when you were too young, I'm feeling I'm feeling very bad. Wow, you should feel bad. No, and th- th- this is the thing though. Like John is the rare case where most people agree that he was is terrible. He was an awful dude. And yeah, there are a few John apologists, and there are some um, very very good um, more. Um, less biased accounts. Um, Mark Morris has written a wonderful book on, um, on John. Um, but it's very difficult to get away from, you know, the terrible things he did, you know, the money, the forest laws, the fines, the sleeping with your mates, misses, And, you know, we haven't even got onto his dealings with the church or his dealings with, with the French, uh, French lands of his father. It's, uh, it literally, it goes on and on and on. So with the church, what, was he doing with the church? I mean, there's been a lot of monarchs in the past that have, you know, not treated the church with favour. Mm. I'm looking at Henry VIII on this one. He's probably been, you know, pretty terrible to the church. So what was John doing that was also, you know, giving him a terrible name? Yeah, yeah, you quite rightly said Henry VIII is obviously probably the most famous um, anti-church English king. Uh, ironically, um, died a Catholic, um, which is very odd if you know anything about Henry VIII. Um, but yeah, John is famous for his falling out with the Pope. Um, he was excommunicated 
and England was put under an interdict, which means that no church services can be held. And this was for five years. And this isn't, you know, like today where the church for a lot of people obviously still important, but doesn't have a day to day, literally telling the time, essentially kind of part of life. Um, for five years, um, there could be no um, christenings, no weddings, um, even no funerals. Um, people were buried and, and there were, um, they were kind of, uh, a middle ground was met where land could be consecrated for people to be buried in. But for the most part, um, John um, caused this by not picking the right man. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, for those that don't know, is the, is the highest uh, clerical position um, in the English church, whether that was the um, pre-Reformation Catholic Church or the, or the Church of England that um, Henry VIII um, established. The uh, Archbishop of Canterbury died um, suddenly. Um, and shockingly, another thing that John liked to do to make money is withhold um, key church positions and claim the rents for himself, because not only did a position uh, a bishop brick or a, you know a, a, an archbishop brick. Uh, it didn't just come with a title and a and a funny hat. It came with lands, um, with farms and tenants and you know rents that came with that. And John would keep those for as long as he could, um, to keep as much money as possible. But you can't really get away with not having an archbishop of Canterbury. Um, and in um, twelve o seven, the archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, died, um, leaving John um, to decide he wanted uh, a chap called John de Grey, who was already the Bishop of Norwich, um, to become his man. Um, obviously, he was a friend of John's and he would look favourably on the crown, which obviously didn't go well for his dad, Henry II, who um, very, very famously um, essentially had his Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett, murdered. Um, but that's a whole other episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so John um, decides that John de Grey should be um, the Archbishop. Um, the monks at Canterbury decided, no, they had their chap. But most importantly, the Pope decided, no, you will have my man, um, a chap called Stephen Langton. Um, you will have him as your Archbishop of Canterbury, because I basically he needed somebody to keep tabs on John. John, being as the stubborn Plantagenet that he was, um, refused. And like I said, England was placed, placed under an interdict and John was excommunicated from the church. Um, which was pretty big, you know, pretty big news for the, for the early 13th century. Like I said, the church was, you know, you can't really overstate the importance of the church um, in medieval England, medieval Europe. Um, so to, to basically remove that would be the equivalent, it's very difficult to, to make it make sense now, but it'd be like removing politics, which, yes, some people may see as a good thing, but ultimately it removes a a lot of um, protections, a lot of rules, a lot of laws, a lot of, um, a lot of your, like I said, your day-to-day -day, uh, life running. Um, you, know, you know when to go to mass, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty damaging for, for both John's reputation and England as a whole. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Obviously, I didn't know anything about kind of this area of it. Um, mm. So... Were they not allowed to have church services or like, is it because obviously all the kind of church positions, they are, you know, servants of 
you know, the Pope. So did mm. they then refuse to kind of have the services or did people try and make do and, you know, make their own services, but they weren't really allowed? Uh, kind of a mix between the two. So like you said, the, um, the clerics, um, the monks and the bishops in, in England were, you know, like you said, essentially employees of the papacy in, in, uh, in Rome. And it was agreed that this, you know, the interdict would be placed on England. And, and, and it was for five years until 1212 when um, Stephen Langton was eventually sworn in as Archbishop of Canterbury. But, see, people realised that, obviously, anybody that knows anything about medieval Britain, medieval England, medieval Europe and the church is, you know, it's from, from the cradle to the grave is a, a phrase that is used to describe something very different. Um, essentially, it was the same for the church. You were born you were christened, you would get married, and you would die and be buried, all with the church looking over you. So there were points where, you know, people, like I said, had to be buried. Um, weddings did take place, um, but it was basically like, well, wait for this to go over, then we'll make it official. Um, but there were certain things that, they, you know, that couldn't be avoided. Um, the, the big point was, essentially, it made John and England an enemy of the church, and this was in the middle of the kind of crusading spirit. Um, Innocent III, the Pope at the time, was a, was a big fan of crusading. He, he ordered the Third Crusade, uh, the famous Third Crusade of, his, of Richard the Lionheart, and also the Albigensian Crusade, the first crusade against fellow Christians. But it basically, you know, it was, England was then an um, a open target for, for Catholic monarchs like Philip II, Augustus of France, um, who at one point tried to get his son, the future Louis VIII of France, shock, he's called Louis, um, and um, made King of England, uh, essentially, as a crusade. So it was an um, incredibly dangerous five years. Yeah, it's just really kind of interesting to think about because I can't imagine there being like an olden times Britain without the church because even up mm. until say like you know maybe kind of post-war like even in the 1950s 60s the church was a really fundamental part of people's lives and that's like not even to the same extent as it would have been back then so I just can't imagine like them like firstly that John was so petty to keep it up for five years um mm. because he could have just backed down and been like like, you know, if they actually did impose it and be like, oh, sorry, actually, no, like, let's go back. I'll put the person you want on and make them archbishop. Mm. But instead, he lasted a whole five years, which is yeah. just obviously shows that he's a very petty person. Um, and, you know, secondly, I just can't imagine that I can just imagine the unrest of people that mm. around that would have been kind of experiencing this because to have something so big and then literally it's kind of just all stopped one day I just can't imagine that yeah you know what it's probably comparable to a lockdown if the lockdown lasted for five years you know there was there was times for you know for months on end that you know like many people around the world during covid we were completely housebound we weren't allowed to leave we were allowed to go out once a day you know, imagine that for five years, obviously slightly different, but the restrictions placed on you through no fault of your own, you know, there's, there's anger there. There's obviously a deep sense of like dread because, you know, like you said, religion played such an important part in people's lives up until sort of very recently. 
the thought of sounds obviously very macabre, but the thought of dying without, you know, getting your last rites and, and being buried in consecrated ground, you know, purgatory is is a very real threat at this point in history and people do not want to be in purgatory. They certainly don't want to be in hell, but you know, that the ultimate salvation is to get to heaven and, and without the church's protection and guidance, they can't do that. And it must have been a truly awful thought. Yeah, and I think we're kind of forgetting the point, like obviously in our lifetimes and say like in modern history, like Britain's been a Protestant country, which don't necessarily, okay, you believe in heaven and hell, but you don't believe in purgatory or kind of, it's not as, not extreme, but Catholics have very different ideas about, you mm. know, you know, purgatory exists in Catholicism and, you know, there's more rituals and kind of blessings and stuff. So when you think about that, um, the fact of kind of like you said the burial like the burial and you know the marriage I think that would have been huge because you know living in sin would have been mm. unthinkable and the fact that you know I'm sure it must have been in some people's minds like this isn't a real wedding um, so I can just imagine like you know morally a lot of people would have been very upset and I can't believe it took them over five years to actually do something about it. It's, it's mental what stubborn politics does to a population. Um, but yeah, John was, a, I've said it before and I'll say it again, John was a pretty bad king because <laughs> he definitely put himself ahead of everybody else. You know, his wife, his children, his subjects, his nobles, his friends, if he probably even had any. Um, but yeah. He, like I said, he wasn't dealt the best hand. Um, he inherited um, his brothers and his father's wars, really. Like I said, um, Henry II was more a French duke than an English king for most of his reign. He held, like I said, lands from the south of France all the way up to the Scottish borders. And by the time John comes to the throne, those lands in France um, are under threat from Philip II who realistically is, it's a weird thing to say, but he's the first French king. He is the, his, he is the first king of France rather than king of the Franks, which I think is quite an interesting point. The Franks, uh, not to go on too much of a tangent, were a, you know, a group of, for lack of a better word, Christianized barbarians that thrived after the Roman Empire fell in the West. Um, and most of what is today's France, Germany, Belgium, Holland, northern Italy was, was once controlled by the Frankish emperor uh, Charlemagne. Um, one of his descendants became Philip II, who instead of calling himself King of the Franks, he was King of France and King of all France. And that really changed their mindset in how they looked at France. And Philip II is kind of known most famously for two things, having a strange nickname and um, also reclaiming most of France back from an English king, John. Um, you know, by, by 1206, 1207, you know, just as things are getting bad with the church, um, all of Normandy, um, sorry, uh, Anjou, uh, Maine, Brittany is now pro-France, uh, most of Gascony and Poitou, you know, his mother's um, kind of native land in Aquitaine, all gone, all back to the French throne. Um, the Battle of the Beauvais uh, in 1214 was the final nail in the, cross, uh, in the coffin, sorry, when Normandy was finally lost. 
um, and John was essentially kicked out of France, broke, at war with the church, at war with his people, um, and as of 1214, 1215, um, at war with the, uh, with the nobles. Um, John is famously um, referred to as John Lackland sometimes, or John Softsword. Um, Lackland is a little bit harder to pin down. It's either because he was born with no intentions um, or his father had no intentions to give him any land, so he lacked land, or it's because he lost all of his father's land um, in the run-up to Magna Carta. So yeah, he's known as John Lackland um, or Soft Sword because he was terrible at fighting, like truly awful at fighting. Which isn't really ideal as a king, no. um, especially one where you've been, you followed on from your brother who was kind of, this military hero um, mm. who, you know, was in the Crusades and all that, um, you know, I can imagine he was probably a little embarrassed about his nicknames. And I feel like he was just kind of, I don't know, he just seems very unimpressive, doesn't he? Yeah, that's, that's probably the best way to describe John, unimpressive. Um, you know his his brother. Obviously, it's the time of it's the period of nicknames. So Philip the Second Augustus, you know, a, a throwback to the Roman Emperor Empire. Empire you know, um, Augustus the First Emperor. Um, it gives us obviously the eighth month of the year now, but at the time it meant you know, imperial power and might. To be August was was a wonderful title, and, and no one's ever really been given that title again. There was um, Frederick Barbarossa, the uh, the German Emperor. Um, that was, you know, r roughly the Holy Roman Emperor, who uh, unfortunately drowned on his way to the Third Crusade. Um, and then you've got Richard the Lionheart, um, you know, famous, like you said, for fighting in the Third Crusade against Saladin. Um, not very good in terms of being an English king, but in terms of what it was to be a 12th century monarch, um, Richard II, Frederick Barbarossa and Philip Augustus were three fine examples of, of what it was and then you've got John who is arguably the opposite of those three men when you're saying like he you know he's bad at fighting um he lost all the land in France it's just like he's so different like he almost mm. starts the kind of French hate like yeah because if you think before Henry II was pretty French um, you know, Richard the Lionheart, maybe more English, but, you know, you get to John and it's like, oh, no, we hate France now, sorry. And, like, it's just such a contrast. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, obviously, Henry II was born um, Henry of Anjou. Um, his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, they both spoke a, a French dialect. Um, his brother, Richard the Lionheart, was probably the most French. Um, he cared so little for England. He he even said he would sell London to finance his, um, the crusade. Um, he spent maybe six months in England in his entire 10 year reign. He absolutely adored Aquitaine. I mean, I guess why wouldn't you prefer the south of France to Mexborough, for, as an example? I can't imagine you would, you would ever pick Rotherham over, you know, uh, Bordeaux. Um, so I get it, I get it, Richard, fair play, but still. Um, but yeah, John, that's, that's a really good point you've made about it kind of really does sow the seeds for the, and that, this is not to say that there wasn't um, 
antagonisms before Henry II fought with with uh, with Philip II's dad, um, dad, father. Let's be formal. Um, and you know, Richard had his wars with Philip II in and around the Crusades. And like I said, it wasn't new. It's, it was always complex with with William the Conqueror, a vassal of the French king as a duke, becoming a king. Um, anyone that's ever played Crusader Kings knows how difficult it is when vassals inherit um, titles on the same level as you. It's, it, it creates political problems and that followed throughout England's history with France up until, really up until George III, who was the last king to, to claim the title King of France. But again, I'm getting way, way, way ahead of myself. Um, but yeah, John sucked. I mean... Was there kind of anything else that he was doing? If we can add anything else to this long list of problems um, that he's already caused, I mean, it's already been very, you know, a lot. <laughs> I was going to say it's a it's a pretty good list. I mean, it's as far as rap sheets go, it's um, it's a pretty big one in terms of, of getting yourself in trouble. Um, I mean, like I said, he his his main. The, the main thing that caused him the most issues, realistically, it was a combination of, of the three kind of things, the church, the money and the wars. Um, but it was the fact that he would then, he would lose land in France and then tax his nobles to go and take it back and lose again, um, which ultimately led to many of the northern barons, good lads, um, many, many of the northern lords um, rising up in rebellion against John. Uh, in early 1215, um, which ultimately led to the topic of this episode, which is Magna Carta, which was signed in June of 1215. And I'm going to come back to the point that it was signed because it technically wasn't, but I'll come back to that. Yeah, so what did the Magna Carta kind of entail and like what were the effects, like obviously you're saying like it was signed but not signed and like obviously was it kind of a willing thing or was it you know more of like an ambush yeah i mean it really was because the barons were able to take london obviously and then take the royal treasury as well so john was broke with no friends um, which is a pretty bad place to be when everybody's got swords um so as i mentioned at the start they met at runnymede which was you know considered like neutral ground and Ironically, Stephen Langton was the, um, the chap in charge of mediating all this. Um, so basically, the reason this all happened was so Steve could get a job. Um, and now he was the one that was um, holding his king uh, accountable for it. Um, in terms of the signing, not signing, it's kind of twofold because um, King John did not have a signature. Um, he probably couldn't write very much if he could write at all. He would be able to read. Uh, French and Latin, definitely not English. Um, but he wouldn't have signed it. He would have just used his seal. Um, so if you ever see any medieval documents, you always see um, like little ribbons and things falling off the bottom of it. That's people's, essentially people's signature. Um, a, royal, a seal with probably an image of him on a horse with a sword. Um, a wax seal was used um, to, to seal it. So technically it wasn't signed, it was sealed. And also, like you said, John did agree um, to all 63 clauses of the original Great Charter that it was known as at the time. Or the, uh, um, sorry, it was not known as the Great Charter, that's, that's the point. Um, it was known as the um, 
a essentially a, a charter of uh, liberties, um, as such, to to use the American term. Um, but as soon as it was signed, or not signed, um, John went to his old friend, the Pope, who ironically became his biggest fan after Stephen Langton was made Archbishop, because England then became a papal thief as well. So technically, England was held as a um, as property of the Pope. Anyway, the Pope asked, requested, told um, the prelates and the nobles of England to disregard Magna Carta. It meant nothing. It wasn't legally binding. Um, you know, no divinely appointed monarch should be um, told by his subjects how to rule. Like I said, this has never been never been done before. And it, and it really, realistically, wasn't done again properly until the, uh, the modern era. Um, so this is when the First Barons' War happens. Um, it does outlive King John. Um, but essentially, like I said, Philip II has his son Louis, the future Louis VIII of France, uh, invade England um, in an attempt to claim England as a as a uh, as a fiefdom of of, of the French, um, the barons also um, support Louis's claim because um, better a Frenchman than an idiot, I guess, was probably the the feeling at the time. Um, John essentially ran away and he crossed the Wash, um, which I believe is near uh, Norwich. Um, he crossed the Wash um, before low tide. He lost all of the crown jewels, so there is, um, probably not anymore, but there is the, the crown of King John somewhere out in the, um, the, the North Sea somewhere. Um, John was um, very ill at this point, I'm assuming in under incredible amounts of stress from everything that had happened over his um, sort of 16 year reign. Um, he got as far as Newark. And he, um, unfortunately, I guess, because it's a terrible way to go, died of, of dysentery, uh, which is a fairly common way to go at this time. But um, yeah, he left his, his infant son, Henry, named after his father, um, to become Henry III of England. I mean, I was just thinking, if he couldn't get any worse, he manages to lose the crown jewels. Like, it's just a, oh, John yeah. moment. Like, yeah, it's literally the how? cherry on top. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just proves how, you know... Just he wasn't suited to the role. Let's yeah. put it that way, um, because you just can't imagine any other monarch losing the crown jewels. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 ironic, isn't it, that in an attempt to keep his crown, he physically lost his own crown, um, which is which is mental. Uh, if you think about it with hindsight, it's it's nuts to see to see that. Uh, and when Henry the Third was coronated. Um, they just had a gold disc that they used as a crown because they didn't have time to get one made. Um, but uh, it's not the end of the story of Magna Carta either. Um, Magna Carta was reissued um, on um, the orders of William Marshall, who had stayed close to the, uh, the crown throughout this. He was loyal to John. Although he was the Earl of Pembroke, he was a major landowner in England and Ireland. Um, he, was, um, he stayed loyal to the crown, um, as he was to Eleanor of Aquitaine, he was to Richard, he was to John, and he would be to Henry III. He had Magna Carta reissued in 1216 and 1217 again, um, but this was the first time that the document was used to as a way to get taxes granted. 
Similarly to how Labour um, had to go to Parliament to get taxes raised, Magna Carta was reissued to see I, Henry III, um, willingly and knowingly sign this document, this great charter, um, upholding your liberties as nobles, because let's get this straight, the Magna Carta was not for all people. It was for the, the, you know, the, the top of the top, for the, for the high churchmen, um, and the, the nobility, but this was the first time, you know, it's in 1216, which sounds mental, uh, that a document was used um, essentially as an act of parliament, um, which obviously it does have its, its parallels throughout history. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's interesting to note that um, it's, it was reissued, um, because I think when you think of Magna Carta, you probably think of just like one event where it mm. just happened once and that was it. Um, and it's interesting that it was kind of William Marshall that took the, I guess, initiative to do that because yeah. um, he's not really someone that I've heard in association with Magna Carta. Um, yeah. I've heard of him, but I didn't know that part about it. So it's quite interesting that he took kind of that role of, um, I guess, enforcing it in a way. Yeah, I think he saw it as an opportunity to make sure that the the crown that he respected so much stayed in, you know, stayed on the head of the right people, uh, as he saw it. Like I said, he was a he was a a, a loyal man of of Henry the Second, Eleanor, of of Richard, of John even, and then of of Henry the Third. Um, he he did obviously very well out of the out of the church. He he had, like I said, he had vast estates in Ireland. Um, and throughout, throughout England as well. Um, but yeah, this obviously it helped in a way that Henry III um, was only a child. Um, he was nine or ten years old when it was reissued. Um, it was then later reissued in 1225, though, under Henry III himself. He'd come into his majority. Um, and this is when it is first referred to as the Great Charter, the Magna Carta in, in Latin. Um, and this wasn't because it was seen as this great important document. It was just one of those things, but it was actually to stop it being confused with another charter that was written on a smaller piece of vellum, which was animal skin that was used instead of paper, um, which was the Charter of the Forest, which shockingly um, dealt with the forest laws, but to differentiate them, one was called Charter of the Forest and one was called the Great Charter, just es essentially because it was written on a bigger piece of parchment. I mean, they really did go with the simple things, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, to, to say everybody had weird nicknames when it came to really important earth change, like world-changing documents. Yeah, it's just a great charter, isn't it? Yeah, it's good, that one. I like that one. That's basically what they said. It's on big paper. <laughs> yeah, and we still use it, like the name today. So, yeah. you know, they did something right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, out of the 63 original clauses, most of them... Well, a few, a few of the more troubling ones, let's say, were, were taken out in the 1216, 1217 and 1225 reissues. Um, a lot of those dealt with the actual rebellion that was going on at that time. Um, but there are four clauses that are still being used today. Um, in part, clause one, um, clause 13 and famously clause 39 and 40. And if you would like... I will read out clause 39 and 40 for you because those are the ones that mean something to us. I mean, go for it. I'm interested to know. So um, they, will, they will sound surprisingly familiar, uh, but clause, clause 39 is 
No free man shall be seized, imprisoned, disposed, outlawed, exiled, or ruined in any way, nor in any way proceeded against, except by the lawful judgment of his peers and the law of the land. And then clause 40 is, to no one will we sell, to no one will we deny or delay right of justice. They definitely sound familiar. <laughs> mm. um, and I guess, so this was only for, like, noble at the time. Um, yeah. But obviously now we take it in the context of, like, everyone, don't we? Yeah, essentially, the way it was, because I, I fully recommend people go and listen to somebody read out Magna Carta. It's, it's quite cool, actually, to hear it. Um, there are YouTube videos of people doing it. And also, um, if you read um, Dan Jones's book on the Magna Carta, he, if you listen to it as an audio book, he reads out the whole thing at the end, which is very cool. Um, but it's essentially framed. The first clause, as an example, is all about upholding the rights of the church. Um, like I said, first and foremost, this was about upholding the rights of the church to appoint their own bishops. Um, you know, this caused this, the church issue caused the whole kerfuffle anyway. Um, but it was very much framed in a sense that this is for nobility, this is for the church, but it's said in a way that's kind of open to interpretation. So it's um, to my, I'm paraphrasing here, to my nobles, the high clerics of the realm, um, my squires and my servants and all good, um, good and loyal um, subjects of the king. So essentially, if you're a good person, this applies to you. If you're a bad person, you break the law, it doesn't apply to you anymore because, you know, you're not kind of our kind of guy. Um, but very much so, like, don't get it twisted very much about um, the nobility. Yeah, which I think is something that when people talk about Magna Carta, they almost forget that mm. it wasn't just for everyone in the whole country. Because, like, let's be honest, the king didn't really care about the ordinary person and we don't have the records of the ordinary people anyway but I think you know we've seen kind of maybe something we'll discuss in a minute but people trying to use the Magna Carta to apply to themselves and it's like you're not a baron so maybe not exactly and and as relevant as the Magna Carta sorry as, as Magna Carta is today there you know there are clauses like I said there is only three and a half really because one of them isn't used entirely, but, you know, Clause 13 is about upholding London's rights specifically. I know London historically has been um, exempt from certain taxes and it's, um, it's been held in this strange kind of, not commonwealth, but um, its own little entity within England. Um, that's part of Magna Carta as well. Um, but there's also clauses like Clause 23, which is my favourite, which is the one everybody always kind of asks me about because it's the thing they've heard, is fish weirs. Um, fish weirs are fish traps, essentially. I'm not going to pretend I know anything about fish weirs. I'd been fishing once and I hated it. It was awful. Um, but essentially, um, another thing that John did was he essentially controlled all of the fishing in England through fish traps. He would have his own fish traps placed at the start, you know, the, at, the, um, at the, uh, the mouth of you know, rivers like the Thames, which essentially stopped all fish migration through England. Um, it had drastic effects on like salmon population, for example. Um, and that was something that people were annoyed about. Um, so Clause 23 um, saw that um, 
only certain places could have certain fish weirs um, and essentially John couldn't put his fish weirs where he wanted to um, but that was the same for everybody because um, those that make the law um, for the first time were essentially had to adhere to it as well um, which is a strange concept to some still um, but in you know in 1215 it was probably even stranger uh, to King John. I mean we're probably talking about this on one of the worst days for following your own <laughs> laws you know yep. considering it's you know January 2022 and Boris is you know He's doing a bit of a King John, I think I'll put it that way. Um, yeah. Not in terms of putting fishing weirs out in the Thames, but in terms of uh, annoying everyone by not following any laws. Um, but <laughs> I think that's quite funny that they put in kind of the um, a fishing thing. Like people were like, I just imagine them all sitting down, putting it together and going, oh, well, the fishing thing's very annoying. Let's write that down. Do you know what it reminds me of? Um, it reminds me of, of Brexit, because one of the main arguments for Brexit was um, English fishing uh, territory. Um, you know, we, we've got our fishing lands back. It, it very much feels like, uh, wait a minute, fishing? That's the most important thing you can think of. But I guess, you know, in, in 13th century England, um, and apparently today, fish is a massive part of, of the diet and, and the, the economy, so... Um, yeah, it, but it is, it's one of those funny clauses that, um, that I always seem to get asked about. What about the fishing? I always seem to get when anybody ever asks about Magna Carta. So yeah, clause 23. <laughs> the most important one in the whole document. <laughs> yeah, it's the one I always remember, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it shows kind of how different things were important though. Like, I guess one little thing, like putting a, I guess they're fishing traps, you know, putting them somewhere is stopping someone from eating so I guess you can kind of see why that would be a huge problem yeah yeah I think obviously the bit that we take from Magna Carta that is still written into the constitution the the very much uncodified constitution of, of Britain and England uh, specifically is the um, clause 39 and 40 which deal with essentially I'm paraphrasing again and this was built on by later uh, legislation um, essentially, no trial without jury, um, and you cannot be imprisoned without essentially being um, accused of something, which is something we definitely take for granted in 2022. But you know, 800 years ago, it was a completely unknown. Uh, I can't stress enough how how challenging this document will have been to even comprehend for most people, especially King John. Yeah, I imagine it probably did shock him right to his core he probably was just absolutely baffled but mm. um yeah like you said kind of it's still relevant today and that you know um other people you know it's kind of influenced law throughout yeah the years I mean obviously it is kind of one of the first laws and documents so obviously it's going to influence you know further documents um but I find it just interesting that, you know, it was actually so long ago now, like 800 years, like, and then they were that advanced. It's quite incredible. Yeah, I think it's, it's one of those things as a, as a medievalist myself that I, I like telling people because it, 
it removed that whole Dark Ages myth that, you know, the world was dark and dingy after the Roman Empire and it was controlled by the church completely and, you know, everybody was dead by the age of 27. And yes, a lot of that did happen. I'm not saying that it didn't, but, you know, one of the most important documents in human history um, was, was written in, in 1215. Uh, we're very, very fortunate that we still have four copies of it, as far as I know, still today. I think there's two in the British Library, there's one in Lincoln, and there's one in Gloucester, but I could be wrong about the Gloucester one. Yeah, there's definitely two in the British Library. I know that. The other ones, I don't know where they are, um, but it's definitely something I'd like to go and kind of visit at some point, um, now that I actually know what the Magna Carta is. <laughs> everything that has happened to do with rights and liberty and fairness um, for the last 800 years. Uh, so, you know, never discredit how important um, history and I guess specifically Magna Carta is. Yeah, and I mean, I kind of touched on it earlier, but obviously I said people use the Magna Carta incorrectly. Um, recently we've seen this with kind of the COVID rules, people saying, oh, well, I can't have my business closed down because of Magna Carta. Um, and, like, just to clear this up, just because we've said it's really important, it applies to everything, but can you just clear up, the Magna Carta does not apply to lockdown rules, does it? Absolutely not. Like I am not a lawyer, and I'm barely a historian, but I can absolutely guarantee you that you cannot use Magna Carta to keep your shop open or not do your homework or not eat your vegetables because it doesn't apply unless you are being held and tried without a jury or trying to no not even fish weirs because that's null and void as well so yeah stop quoting the Magna Carta unless it applies and you're a 13th century nobleman Thank you. I feel like we had to say that just in case people were listening to this episode thinking, oh, wow, yep, okay, yep, I'm going to use this Magna Carta to do yeah, something horrific. <laughs> um, yeah, no one should be doing a John. Yep, just be less King John. I think this yeah. is our takeaway from this episode. Um, yeah. And I do think the phrase, he's being a bit of a King John, should become a popular, a popular phrase. Um, you know, I'll start saying it. I mean, it, it applies to a lot of people, so I think it would be a great one to throw in there. I guess on that note, uh, we should probably say thank you very much for listening. And uh, unless you've got anything else to add, I guess we will uh, see you all very soon. Yep. Um, it's been great to actually learn about the Magna Carta because it's something I didn't know about. So it's been a very enjoyable episode for me, even if it hasn't been for anyone else. So... <laughs> yeah thank you i will take that thank you very much everyone. Yeah. <laughs> thank you i hope you've enjoyed this episode of the past and present podcast for more make sure to follow us on instagram at past and present media and at twitter on past present m thank you